All right, good morning, and uh, I'm going to open up with a prayer that I shared last Sunday when we started this, and it's from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and it's the um, prayer for Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, which is the primary reason, other than just you know the, great, the knowledge of this great book and the insights that, that this is being offered at this time, that is, I'm doing here during the Lenten season. All right, and this is the prayer for Ash Wednesday. Almighty and everlasting God, who hateth nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness of sins, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, some of you are here for the first time, uh, so let me introduce a little bit about why we're doing this and the significance of reading this book that was written back in the 14th century. Uh, you know, the whole significance of Lent is not just that we feel bad about ourselves, but that there's a reason for it. Probably all of us have good enough reasons to feel bad about ourselves, but what makes it Lenten is that that sense of contrition, repentance, prepares our hearts and our minds to realize the great truths that we experience on Holy Week, in particular on Easter Day, and that's the significance of this. If you want to feel bad, you know, just read the newspaper. But <laughs> if you want to experience more profoundly in your heart and your mind the significance of Easter, then go through Lent. And so, the whole purpose of Lent has a bigger aim than just the fact that we are feeling contrite and penitent for who we are. All right. Um, to do that, I, I suggested to Gil a while back that I could do something here on Dante's Inferno, which some of you probably have read and studied. Uh, I, I'm no great scholar on it. it uh, people dedicate their whole lives studying Dante's Divine Comedy, which is three parts, the Inferno, Purgatory, and Peristido. Uh, and we're just concentrating on the first third of the great book, and that's the experience that Dante has being guided by that great pagan writer, Virgil, the author of the Aeneid, here is a symbol, not just for Dante, but for medieval Christendom, of what reason can provide people of faith. See, for many of us, we have been sort of in this battle for a long time about reason versus faith, theology versus philosophy, you know, the sacred versus the secular. Those divisions did not mean as much there in the Middle Ages as they do now. Uh, and one of the reasons why is because most of the great intellects of the medieval period were great people of faith like Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure. They were students of great pagan philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, but they were deeply informed and shaped by the great confessions of their faith. And so there was no great conflict here. And so for an author to use a pagan poet, considered the greatest poet up to that time, Virgil, as a guide for a Christian writer to teach more about penitence and contrition was not something sort of unusual or, or, or out of the ordinary. That is, we can learn from reason to deepen our faith. That's the point of it. That's the point of it. That faith and reason are really aimed towards the same goal, and that is our acknowledgement of God, and they can help influence one another if they are rightly guided. Okay, so Dante meets up with Virgil, and he starts this descent into Hades. Uh, this is a little bit about his life. You see there that he died in 1321. Uh, the great themes of the book, 
That is, our punishments are equal to the kinds of our sins. And I'm going to talk about that, which I think is one of the great lessons to be learned from Dante's Inferno. What we suffer is relative to what we do. Our punishment inferno is not, un, is, is not uh, uh, without merit in the sins that we commit. And two sins result from our disordered loves. The most important thing in our life is not that we're perfect or flawless. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we love those things that should be loved rightly. And so we have to have a right order of our loves. Ultimately, the greatest love is the love towards God then towards others who bear the image of God, then to creation itself because it bears the handprint of the footprints of God. So when our lives are ordered by those great loves, God, humanity, and, and creation, then we're, we will live a, a productive and faithful life that way. What happens with sin, though, is not necessarily a, 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 an invidiousness in our mind, but just a corruption of our loves. All right. And then three... And this is one of the reasons why, as I say, and uh, if you know anything about the book, you probably know this. Well, this is not a very modern book at all. It re we really struggle in, in seeing how it can help shape modern life. And one of this causes, number three, the pervasiveness of corruption. Nobody wants to admit they're corrupt. Nobody. Uh, we are working really hard as a culture how to persuade ourselves that if anyone is corrupt, it's those people, not us. Well, see, I think one of the great insights of Dante is that corruption is thorough, it's pervasive, it's ubiquitous. And it's in me as much as it is in anyone else. All right, this is a famous painting here of the Inferno. I showed it last time, uh, Botticelli's. It, you can, one of the great features, I think, of this painting, the reason why I'm showing it again, is that as you go down, look how much narrow it becomes. These represent the nine circles of hell. And the more you go down into hell, the less freedom you have, the more constricted you are, the more bound you are, until finally we get to the end, there is no freedom at all. In fact, I, I, you can think of it this way. I... I the life that lives the most fulfilled life is the life that is ordered upward towards the love of God. The life that is the most frustrated life is the life that loses its freedom oriented towards the, the ninth level of hell here. So freedom comes from love. Slavery comes from sin. That's the great contrast here. Okay, I'm going to skip through some of this. We... Uh, talked about Canto 5 last time, and we're now moving into Canto 6. All right, I'm going to try to get to Canto 11 by the end of our discussion today. But you see here uh, a statue of a three-headed dog. And this three-headed dog guards this circle of the Inferno. Let me get to that here. You see his name. It's Cerberus. I guess that's how it's pronounced. It's a ravenous dog, insatiable appetite. It just tears up everything in order to feed itself. This is a symbol that Dante uses for the gluttons. These people at this level of, of the inferno are so ravenous, just like this ravenous dog, that they have fallen in, into the vice of gluttony. Let me say a little bit about this. This will come up a couple more times. But a little bit about why, let's say, gluttony would have its own proper circle in hell. What's wrong with being gluttonous? It is considered one of the seven deadly sins, which is you know, an ancient sort of 
theory of human perversity or human corruption, that is, these deadly sins that people fall into. And the common denominator among the deadly sins, all the way from lust to pride to anger and so on, is that the vice becomes its own goal. And gluttony here seeks just to satisfy its appetite. So appetite feeding appetite. There's no end to it, in other words. It's like falling down a well and you cannot stop. That's how Thomas Aquinas described these deadly sins. Well, in this level of the, the, um, the, the plight of humanity, the corruption of the soul, the, uh, the perversity of culture, we find people here are just eating to eat being gluttonous to hoard, to, to accumulate, just to accumulate. There's no goal higher than just the accumulation, than just being gluttonous. And that's what makes it a deadly sin. There is no goal higher than the appetite itself. Okay. Here, this, uh, this ravenous dog here, uh, I'm, I'm just, I've, I've given a few lines here from each of these cantos uh, to give what I think would be sort of the essence of that particular canto or chapter. And this dog here, this ravenous beast, is at the gate and he'll allow people to come in. That is, if you're gluttonous, he'll allow you to come in. But once you get in and you find out what misery you are, you can't get out. The dog will not let you out. So once you're trapped by gluttony, you can't get out by gluttony. Because gluttony feeds its own self. Now, he mentions a citizen here named um, Chaakcho. I suppose that's how it's pronounced. Nicknamed the hog. Now, we do not know much about this person. It might have been a Florentine. Dante writes this in exile from Florence. He, he's, he's a native of Florence, and he gets exiled out of it. And he maybe refers to a particular individual there. We, what research I have found, hardly anyone knows anything about him. But uh, he nonetheless is a symbol of a gluttonous person. Gluttony was my offense, and for it I lie rotting like a swollen log. Interesting way to see what happens to being gluttonous. You become swollen. Uh, without shape or, or disordered shape. That's probably a better way of thinking of it. A gluttonous person has lost their proper ordering of love. They're swollen up like you can, you know, maybe put a log in water and it becomes just sort of saturated with water and it won't burn. You can't use it for anything. Gluttony has that same kind of effect upon a person. Uh, now, one of the most significant things about this figure, Kaakko, is what he tells uh, Dante. And this is uh, one of maybe three different political predictions or prophecies that are given in the Inferno. This is the first one. And he then, uh, after many words given and taken, it shall come to blood. White shall rise over black and rout the dark Lord's force, battered and shaken. All right, that's the first of a number of political prophecies that are given. The white and the black here refer to rival cousins there in Florence. The, he was of the Gulf family. It had won sort of a little civil war there in Florence, and they began to dispute with one another the whites versus the blacks. I'm not really for sure why they were called whites and blacks. But it started a civil war, and at first, Dante's part of the family, once again, it's one family, feuding cousins, one family though, not other races or other cities, but same family fighting one another. That's how pervasive corruption can be, where families turn upon family members. Well, the whites win, but all of a sudden, Pope Boniface VIII, whom Dante loathes, by the way, and he's going to put him in a real torturous part of the Inferno later on, uh, sides with the blacks, 
brings the papal army there to Florence and they defeat the whites and they banish uh, Dante from his hometown Florence and in exile he eventually dies in 1321. It's during that exile period that he writes this magnificent book. All right. He uses the blacks here, once again, as symbols of glutton, gluttony. All they wanted was just to accumulate things. They weren't really aimed for justice. They weren't aimed to make life better for everybody else. They just wanted to accumulate, to possess things. And Boniface VIII, siding with them, also becomes a symbol of gluttony. But one of the significant things here that he says about a gluttonous person and this is the consequence of gluttony, is that last statement that I have here. And giving his head a shake, now this refers to Kiasco, C-I-A-C-C-O, he looked up at my face, cross-eyed, then bowed his head and fell away among the other blind souls of that place. So in this level of hell, the gluttonous people are, are uh, indifferent, they're uh, lifeless, listless, they're so saturated with themselves. There's nothing sturdy, nothing committed about them. As I said, his eyes just fall. His, ha his head is bowed. And he becomes like these other blind souls. A gluttonous person, that is, who wants to possess just to possess, to devour just to devour, eventually loses sensitivity altogether. Loses the ability to to be affective towards other people, to be interested in anything. Uh, their eyes become dull, their spirits become weak and, and um, uh, indolent. That gluttony has a way of eviscerating, taking away the life of a person. And it can. That vice here takes away life in order to satisfy itself. When appetite feeds on appetite, there is no goal greater than the appetite to feed the human soul. And so when Dante, with Virgil, looks out in this circle of sin, what he sees, these people who got everything they wanted, but in the end, they're just like these swollen logs. They're just like these, these, these lifeless souls. All right, from that point in, Virgil says we need to move on. All right. And they move now into another level of inferno. And this one is associated with two different vices. In this... This canto talks about two circles of the inferno and several vices associated with each of the circle. The first circle, which is circle four, is with greedy people. And the second circle, that is circle five, is going to do with wrathful people. But I love this painting here of greedy people. These are people, uh, you notice they're naked. This is a very famous I'll think of his name in a minute. He's the one who did this, this particular etching. Ah. Dante da 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 da. Oh, uh, Gutag Dore, D O R E, D O R E, did these famous etchings of the Inferno. And this is one of his famous. But those are bags of money. Bags of money. They've gotten what they want, and it's more than they can handle. They just keep stuffing their bags with money. And it's, they're so heavy, they can't push them up the hill there. They, they can't do anything with it. The greedy people have what they want, but it becomes totally ineffective for a meaningful life. Their order, their, their laws become perverse because they got what they wanted. That didn't have an aim greater than the acquisition of what they wanted. A greedy person there is just like these individuals pushing these, you know, onerous bags of wealth. 
and it doesn't do them any good. All right, I'm going to show you another painting here, another famous etching. And this has to do with wrath. This is a very horrifying look. They're standing there in the midst of slime. That's just not pool water. That's slime and it stinks. And then Dante talks about how he's gagging, smelling all this. And these people here who are in wrath, the deadly sin of wrath, actually I like the Latin word, ira, our word irate. You know, there's a difference between being angry and being irate. You know, if, if I insult you, unfairly, unjustly, you'll feel some anger. That's a natural reaction to offense or to harm or something like that. But I, being irate is different. Being irate is when you give in to it. Anger feeds itself. And these people here are screaming while they're trapped in this slime. They're, they're bellowing out. You can see those down here on the bottom left. Their heads are up and they're just screaming out invectives and, and malicious things and horrible angry comments. And that's all they do all day long is just scream out angry things to one another. All right, here's some of the things that he says about them. Um, this fourth circle, that is the, the circle inhabited by wrathful people, he says, I mean the hoarding people, not the wrathful people, the greedy people, is the most populous circle in all the inferno. Maybe there in Florence, a lot of, a lot of you know, sort of uh, hoarders were there, and it was a very wealthy city one of the great Renaissance cities of all of Europe. And, of course, we I've never been to Florence. I hope to go one of these days. You can go and see, in a sense, a lot, lot of the benefits of, of such great wealth as that. And wealth in itself is not bad, but when wealth becomes hoarding, it becomes bad because then it becomes a vice. And this is his kind of slap, I guess, or slam against his hometown, that all these people here, are no better than this uh, fourth level of hell. And as he says, it's the most populated level of hell. You know, this would be easy to say maybe about our culture. We value hoarding, I guess. We value greed. We value accumulation just for accumulation. Uh, we don't even have to debate about it. I mean, to, to in some ways, and I guess in our society, to say you have to justify your wealth for some great moral cause, a great spiritual cause, is, is strange for us. We would never think about that. Uh, I, I could ramble on too much, but let me give you a classic example of this. Um, where, where, where the hoarding of wealth becomes the symbol of, of success. I suspect many of you have been to Chicago. What, what's the name of the street where the Federal Reserve... The State Bank, the City Bank in Chicago. Any, any remember? Is it on Michigan Avenue? Okay, I thought it was kind of... It, it's close. But anyway, you can go there. Those three great banks, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Illinois, and the Bank of Chicago, are all there on that one street. All right. I didn't know anything about this. I'm not clever enough to pick this up. I did a walking guide of great buildings in Chicago once, and this was pointed out to us. When you come up to the Bank of Chicago, it has columns on the front, and those are Dork columns. Or if you know anything about Dork columns, that is a column from classical Greek architecture. It's the most simple. All right? And on, in, in, in Greek temples, the minor gods used Dork columns. Okay, walk down the street, you go to the Bank of Illinois. And there they have iconic, I mean, uh, ionic. ionic columns. Ionic columns. 
And in Greek architecture, those temples were for a little more important gods. And a little more ornate. And when you go down to the Federal Reserve, and there is no bank greater than the Federal Reserve, it is the symbol of our economy, of our prosperity, it gives us stability, and on and on and on. Those columns are called Corinthian columns. And if you ever go to the Parthenon and look at those, those are, and that was for the god Athena, those were Corinthian columns. So here are these very overt religious symbols used to, to suggest what's really important in our society. Uh, and there's a, and I forget the name of the bank. It's probably changed hands all the time. There's a bank in Houston, and the facade of the bank it looks like you're entering a church. Interesting. We, we probably never think about that. I'm not, like I said, astute enough to be able to observe that. But why conjoin religious symbols with symbols of banking, prosperity? Well, then I'm not against banking, and he's not against, you know, you know, prosperity. He's not against that. But what happens when prosperity becomes its own religious end, then it's no different than just hoarding. Okay, enough about that. Um, it's the most populous area, and as he says, all these people here in this fourth circle are lost souls. They eternally dance around in circles. He says the people who love to hoard and to waste things just by hoarding them, they're constantly dancing around in circles. Uh, that second paragraph. Here too I saw a nation of lost souls, far more than were above. They strained in their chest against enormous weights and with mad howls. They holler at one another. Here's, uh, this is another paragraph that he has. Ro uh, mad howls rolled them at one another. Then in haste they rolled them back. One party shouting out, Why do you hoard? And the other, Why do you waste? And they do this for eternity, screaming at each other. You hoard and you waste. See, the waster is the, to the antithesis to the hoarder, and the hoarder is the antithesis, antithesis to the waster. For eternity, they are accusing one another constantly. And, and again, the reason why is that prosperity, when it becomes its own goal, doesn't have an aim higher than itself. What justification can you give for prosperity if you're a hoarder or a waster? You don't. You don't have a justification for it. And this creates that, that addiction here. Okay, he has a very insightful uh, comment uh, about the nature of this kind of addiction. The voice of each, now that's the hoarder and the waster screaming at each other, clamors its own excess when lust meets lust at the two points of the circle where opposite guilt meet in their wretchedness. Interesting. Like a circle. You start at a circle, and you go all the way around, and you meet up to the point next to that where you started. All right? The wasters go all the way around and meet up to the point. In fact, in a circle, the more you pursue hoarding, the more you become wasteful. And in the circle, the more you pursue wasting, the more you become a hoarder. That's his notion. Lust seeks lust. The point of an addiction, the point of one of these vices, one of these deadly sins, is that the appetite becomes its own aim, its own goal. Um, I mean, we could go on and on about that, but uh, again, these are very general, maybe too glib indictments to make, but uh, I do think a lot of advertising, a lot of promotion, a lot of uh, fashion seem to be just appetite feeding upon appetite, lust seeking lust. 
Like you follow the circle around, and if you keep going, will you ever stop? You don't. There's no end to it. All right, let's look a little at what he says here. I don't, I don't have this here in, uh, on the slide, but he says about these people who are committed to wrath, once again, ira, irate. He looks out this other level and he sees these people stuck, as I mentioned, as I had in that other painting, in this slime, this stench. And they're just screaming at one another. And this is what they say. And my kind sage, now that's Virgil, says to Dante, my son, behold the souls of those who lived in wrath. And do you see the broken surfaces of those water holes? On every hand, boiling as if in pain, there are souls beneath that water, fixed in slime. They speak their peace, end it, and start again. People who are wrathful, irate, who give in to their anger, they speak their peace, they end it, and then they start again. That is, there's no reason for them to stop their anger. Their anger hasn't served a greater moral purpose or a greater insight to life. That anger feeds upon itself. A life here stuck in this greamy slime, I'll back up. Uh, I went too far, sorry. Is just content to always venting its own wrath. Like spiteful people Aristotle in his great book on ethics says some of the worst people to deal with are spiteful people. A spiteful person uses any offense as occasion to vent anger. Any offense, whether it's conscious or deliberate or inadvertent and, and uh, not, not deliberate. Any offense becomes occasion for me to lash out at you, to attack you with my anger. I mean, you, you, you've been around this. I mean, you've been in conversations and meetings, family affairs or whatever. Soon as somebody gets angry, it changes everything. It is a powerful human emotion. Uh, some people are gifted where they can handle conflict and confrontation in a very reasonable, sort of uh, level-headed way. But others who deal with conflict and confrontation in very angry ways, they become impossible. To relate because anger is like a poison. Once it gets out there, it affects everything in ways entirely different than just trying to reasonably solve the problem. Well, here in this level of hell, poison is everywhere. That's that green slime. People are stuck in their own anger where they're just screaming out at one another, at each other. All they want to do is to hear themselves vent their anger. Sounds like Congress. <laughs> yeah, that... Uh, we could just take pictures of, of Congress here. Uh, and a lot of that's probably true. I know, once again, I know this is an easy indictment to give. But, um, I mean, how many political speeches have you heard in which you're just out of spite, lashing out at the other side? Well, what Dante is saying is that's a little bit of hell. That is creating consequences in people's life where you get stuck in this kind of green slime. And you don't even know that you're stuck. When appetite feeds itself, you never know that you are now trapped. All right. Virgil then leads him into another level here. And this is Canto 8. And it's at this canto that near the end of it, uh, Virgil and Dante see the city of Dis. The city of Dis. There's an upper hell 
in a lower hell. All along, our freedom is becoming less evident and we are becoming more restricted, more stuck. Once we enter in the walls, and I kind of like this painting. I went online and saw a number of paintings. I like this one because it is so foreboding and daunting and scary. It's like what you would have in a nightmare or something. Whoever sort of depicted this sees this experience of moving down into this circle here as moving into this, this eerie, impersonal, uh, intimidating experience. This is the city of Dis. And once we enter this near the end of the canto, we're going to be moving into the lower levels of hell. All right, circle five. I misspelled river, but I could say that's the, la the Italian word for river, so you wouldn't know the difference. It ribs sticks, uh, and we're going to see more wrathful people, and he's going to name some individuals here. And uh, the person who is the boatman that gets us across the river sticks is this guy here, uh, Philegus. All right, so Virgil and Dante have gotten on the boat going across the river sticks, and... It is there that they meet this man named Filippo Argentine. Ar, I'm not for sure how to say it. Argenti. Argenti. Filippo Argenti. All right. After Filippo Argenti all cried together, the mad dog Florentine wheeled at their cry and bit himself for rage. I saw them gather. Well, who is he? Well, remember I told you that when Boniface VIII brought his papal army to join up with the black family to fight against the white family, Dante was exiled out of Florence. While he was gone, this man, Filippo, came and pilfered all of his belongings, stole them all, uh, and left Dante penniless because of that. Well, guess what? You get a a very special place in hell <laughs> if, if, you, uh, if you pilfer Dante's belonging. Um, interesting sort of historical allusion here to this point. But look at how he is depicted, though. He bites himself for rage. Interesting that once one is wrathful and you've lost your object of wrath, let's say Filippo is wrathful against Dante and Dante is exiled, well, where are you going to turn your wrath? You turn it on yourself. People who are irate in principle usually end up living a, a, a conflicted, a tormenting life. They're, uh, they're, they may be wanting to do that, but they're, they're constantly filled with anxiety and stress, probably don't sleep well. They are wondering, uh, you know, who, who is out there plotting against them. Usually people who are irate like this are paranoid. Uh, because they think there are all of these kind of individuals and forces out to get them. And so they always need to stand up and defend themselves by being wrathful all the time. They become an army of one against you know, the legions. These people here end up devouring themselves. They, they, once again, they lose the ability to have higher commitments than just being angry. A wrathful person is sad in the sense is that they are so overly protecting themselves that they lose the ability to form friendship and definitely to form any kind of loving relationship. Remember, we're going down. We're becoming less free, more constricted. A wrathful person is restricting their lives to the point almost like, uh, you know, just to compare tortures, you know, if you're on a rack, you're pulled apart. All right? That's obviously not a good thing. 
But if the old Chinese torture, they put you in a box and they constrict it. That's also not a good thing. As we're going down into Hades, we're getting into that Chinese torture box. We're in there and the sides are pushing in on us. And we're losing our ability to order our lives according to the right lives. All right. Uh, this next paragraph I have here. Oh, my beloved master, my guide in peril, who time and time again have seen me safely along this way and turned the power of evil. Stand by me now, I cried, in my heart's fright. And if the dead forbid our journey to them, let us go back together toward the light. Now, this is an interesting, and there's been so much commentary on this aspect of this uh, experience that he has here. Now, we are moving, we're, we're past the river Styx, we're seeing these wrathful people here devour themselves, and we're about to enter into the city of Dis. Now, the people who live in the city of Dis are the fallen angels plus heretics and many others. The first people that they're going to meet are fallen angels and heretics. Dante records here, as they get close to the gates of the city, angels, these fallen angels, come out to Virgil and they start to whisper to him. And Dante doesn't know what they're talking about. And then he hears that they are trying to persuade Virgil to leave Dante there. <laughs> these fallen angels, these evil spirits, are wanting to abandon Dante. And Dante comes up to Virgil and is pleading with him, No, no, please don't leave me here. If, 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 if you don't want to go any further, let's go back towards the light. But whatever he does, he knows he needs guidance. He knows he needs a tutor to see himself through these kinds of temptations. That just relying upon feelings or maybe just relying upon just faith claims, like I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, is, and I know this sounds maybe sacrilegious saying this, and, and I don't, I really do believe in those things, the great Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed too. but that's not enough. I mean, just next time you're going to be tempted with wrath or gluttony or lust, you're going to pull out the Apostles' Creed? I mean, I mean it's true. I mean, it really is. I'm, I'm staking my life on the truth of the Apostles' Creed. However, though, you need another guide. You need some common sense. You need exemplars. You need mentors. You need instruction. And this is what Virgil is to Dante. I need the guidance of reason to see my way through these temptations. And so he cries here uh, to Virgil not to abandon him. All right. Then we move on to Canto 9, and this is the Circle 6, and this is of the heretics. The outcast of heaven, you twice, twice loathsome crew, he cried upon that terrible sill of hell, how does this insolence still live in you? And here I've spot quoted a few of these paragraphs. Why do you set yourself against the throne? Why do you butt against fate's ordinance? Okay, this is the essence of heresy. Heresy is not error for Dante. It's not that you could have made a mistake because you weren't rightly informed or because of some, like, let's say, weakness in your own thinking or in your own life because of some trauma that you're going through. That's not what constitutes heresy. Heresy for, for Dante is a perversion of the mind. It's a stubbornness to believe something that's contrary to the truth. Once again, it's not just an error, but it is a stubbornness, a, a resolve to, to will an untruth. 
And the essence then of heresy is this insolence that one has towards God. You notice that, that the heretic sees the throne and knows fate's ordinance, but the heretic continues to reject it. It's not as though, once again, the heretic said, you know, I've been reading the wrong stuff, now I know the truth. Or, you know, I, I just went through a period in my life because of grief and duress. I, I just couldn't get my faith right with God. That's not what constitutes heresy. It's knowing the truth and willingly denying it all along. And in this level here, this circle six, uh, we start sort of a long kind of investigation, according to Dante, then what constitutes this. Why will people know the truth and still reject it? Why are some people stubborn, not just wrong, but stubborn? Being stubborn is worse than being wrong because it's an act of one's orientation. All right, then we, in fact, we're going to talk about these heretics in three of these cantos. Okay, this next one. Uh, he talks more about the heretics, and he names a pagan philosopher as a heretic. Interesting. You'd think of a heretic only be one who was reared in Christendom, rejecting the truths of Christian claims. But he talks here about a pagan philosopher named Epicurus. Hold on one second. Well, in this dark corner of the Mork of Wrath lie Epicurus and his followers, who make the soul share in the body's death. Now, let me explain what that means. Um, for Dante, the, the stubborn belief that heretics have is the rejection of the immortality of the soul. Now, that sounds rather cliché. That is, you can be wrong about maybe even the Pope, you can be wrong maybe about the Church, but if you deny the immortality of the soul, or as he will say later on, the resurrection of the body, that makes you a heretic. Now, what's so wrong about that? What's so wrong about that? We've been hearing for hundreds of years that those people who are pining away for heaven are not really trying to change their life or change the world now. That all this kind of attention towards life after death is actually harmful for this life. In fact, as you know, Karl Marx you know, said religion is the sigh of the oppressed, the opium of the masses. As long as you believe that God's going to make everything right in, in heaven, then why should you try to make anything right here on earth? And that's been the traditional critique against the, 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 the church's teachings on the resurrection of the body or life eternal or the immortal soul. But why do you think, though, for Dante, that would be the essence of heresy? Why would that belief, I will not be raised for the dead, I will not live with God, after the judgment or away from God after the judgment be so serious that you have a place in hell reserved just for you. What's, what's the point in that? See, for Dante, and I think he's right about this, and this needs to be said and explained in our belief statements about life after death, that if you believe that you will be accountable for eternity, you will be far more committed and serious being accountable in time. If you believe that there are eternal consequences in what you do, it will far more likely convict you, encourage you to do the right thing now. If you think you will be raised from the dead, that there will be a state of immortality with God, this life becomes a lot more important because it's the continuation. That is, the immortality is the continuation of this life. It's not a denial or a, 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 a disregard of the importance and significance of the life. For Dante, it is an enhancement of why this life is so important. 
because it has eternal consequences to it. And so that's why he makes these heretics, basically those who deny life after death. Just a word here about Epicurus. He was a pagan philosopher, very influential, by the way, uh, followed Aristotle, uh, lived in, um, I forget when he died, 200-something B.C. But um, Epicurus was a materialist, that all reality is just basically atoms in motion, uh, governed by material forces, and that uh, there were no gods because all is just atoms in motion. So don't fear what the gods are going to do. And if all reality is just matter in motion, you're just the accumulation of various material forces brought together, there is no eternal soul. So don't fear life after death. And Epicurus said, really, the best life is life of simple pleasures, you know, food and friends and shelter. That's what he was advocating. And part of that, and at the heart of that, is that there is no ultimate accountability for life. Because once you die, your, your atoms dissipate. All right. Epicurus becomes the symbol then of heresy. He becomes a recognition that, uh, that this is a trivial sense of life. This is the sense of the disenchantment of life because all is just matter in motion, just atoms. And that when we die, there is no accountability. There is no continuation of who we are and what we live by. Is a, is a demeaning of life. It's a disenchanting of life. That there's something very important, very, very serious about what we do. All right, now he mentions a cardinal here. I'm going to pick up my pace here. I'm almost ready, almost finished. Uh, he mentions a cardinal, Friedrich, the cardinal of Ubondini. And uh, he also has his special place here down in Inferno. Oh, just as an aside, uh, you know, Dante didn't pull any punches with these people. Not at all. I mean, he had, he's got a bunch of popes down near the end of this. Some of them right close to Satan, by the way. Uh, it, in, in, in some ways, you, how can I put this? You know you really believe in what you're committed to if you're willing to indict and maybe even imprison the really powerful people who disagree with it. I'm not saying that well. For instance, in our society, if we let the really powerful people get by with crimes, how committed are we are to the rule of law? We show that we're committed to the rule of law when we, well, if, if our president commits high crimes, we put him in jail, that nobody's above the law. Well, here these people were thinking they were kind of above the law. And this cardinal uh, uh, is a heretic, according to uh, Dante, and the reason why is because he once makes this statement that if, he, if his soul had lived for eternity, then um, he might be responsible for his life. That was a throwaway line. I'm not really for sure exactly all that Friedrich believed in, but Dante used that as an occasion to indict him. Right. Uh, here he indicts a pope, the first pope. Well, he hasn't indicted Boniface VIII yet. He will eventually, but this is the first pope. We're down in Canto 11, not 9 here, and this is Pope Anastasius. And I'll say why he is indicted here. Just give me a minute for him. He, Anastasius, was a pope that lived in the 5th century. Uh, one of the first major conflicts that occurred in the church was a division between the East and the West Church. The church associated with Constantinople and the one with Rome. All right, Anastasius was the pope of Rome, the bishop of Rome. All right. 
one of the big heresies that was more prevalent in Eastern churches was the idea that Jesus wasn't really you know, born of God the Father. He wasn't really of divine parentage. And a lot of people accepted that. Now, they were doing that in order to explain how could Christ be fully human. And so one way to account for that is that they said, well, you weren't really born by God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Well, the Pope here gives communion to one of those heretics, that is Photinus. And for that, Dante puts him into hell. All right. Uh, give me one minute here. I'll talk really quick. There are a couple of, of serious problems that occur here in this circle, the sixth circle of hell. One is malice. And as he says here, malice is the sin most hated by God. The aim of malice is to injure others, whether by fraud or violence. Malice is a horrible thing. It's like cruelty. I guess that we could make those synonyms. Cruelty and malice are the same thing. But you know, there's something worse than malice. Even though God hates that the most, what is worse than malice is what he says here about fraud. Fraud is even lower in Hades than malice. And why is that? But since fraud is the vice of which man alone is capable, God loathes it most. Therefore, the fraudulent are placed below, and the torment is even more painful. What makes fraud so bad is that it is a crime, a corruption, assault against God's good created nature. Fraud is a perversion of the goodness of life that God has given us. To commit a fraud is not just to lie, is to deny the goodness of what God has declared to be good. A particular form of fraud is what he says here at the bottom, and that's usury. But usurers, by seeking their increase in other ways, soon, I mean, scorn nature and their surf and the follows. Just quickly, and I'll let you go. Why is usury so bad? You ever thought about that? Why is usury so bad? You know, there, there's a difference here in biblical teaching between interest and usury. Interest is what is necessary, let's say you're a financier, to keep your finance business going. If you charge interest above that, that's called usury. Usury is like theft. It's a form of fraud. It's not recognizing the goodness of creation itself. Here, one of the fundamental problems that Dante is trying to expose here is this idea that the world, the life, creation... That which we live, move, and have our being, to use Paul's term, is not good. That we can do with it as we, as we want to. That for Dante, the Lord has made the world and it is a good thing. And fraud is an assault against the goodness of things. And it's born out of the mind. It's not born necessarily out of the will. It's born out of the mind. One last thing, then I'll stop. Fraud, then, for Dante, is an act of self-idolatry. Because if God makes the world good, and I think I can do with it what I want to, then I am placing myself, placing myself above God. It's a form of self-idolatry. Okay, I know many of you going, and I'm going to try to get to the 11 o'clock service myself. So thank you, and we'll continue in our hellish experience, going even deeper into our melee uh, with the next circles. 